Welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is Liam West and I'm a junior doctor in the Oxfordshire Deanery and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. Today, my guest is Dr. Jason Fung. Jason trained and began his medical career at the University of Toronto before heading to the University of California in LA where he completed his fellowship in nephrology. Since then, he's founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program that provides a unique treatment for type 2 diabetes and obesity. When we tell our patient to be physically active, often the next question is, but what diet should I be eating? I'm speaking here to Dr. Fung at the Low Carb High Fat Summit in Cape Town. Does all the research show that carbs are bad, Dr. Fung? No. In fact, that's probably one of the things that a lot of people have problems with, is this whole idea that you should not be eating any carbs. Um, so the, the, the insulin theory, I think, is correct, that insulin leads to weight gain. However, it's not only carbohydrates that raise insulin. That's the problem, and that's one of the things that hasn't been really addressed. If carbohydrates were the only thing that caused insulin increase, then yes, you should just only target the carbohydrates. But mm -hmm. clearly, there's been evidence, uh, which is fairly obvious, that you can eat plenty of carbohydrates and still be without diabetes and without obesity. The most obvious one of that is the Asian populations in the 80s and 90s. So there is a large study called the Intermap study uh, in uh, the mid to late 90s, which is a very extensive study of dietary habits in the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, and China. So what they found was that China, for instance, had much, much higher levels of carbohydrate intake. And this is all essentially white rice. Uh, it wasn't a wheat-based uh, thing, but the... The idea, that if, the idea that if it was all carbohydrates and even refined carbohydrates such as white rice that cause obesity, then you would expect that there would be a lot of obesity in China. And there simply wasn't. The key to the Intermap study, though, was that they had very, very low sugar intake. So there is something about sugar that seems to be specifically fattening rather than just pure carbohydrates. There's another study by Dr. Stefan Lindbergh uh, looking at a small tribe of people off Papua New Guinea called K the Katavan study. Mm -hmm. And they also ate a predominantly uh, tuber-based starchy diet with uh, yams and cassavas and that sort of thing. So about a 70% carbohydrate intake and again, not very much obesity at all. Again, the sugar intake was extremely low. If you look at the Okinawans, for instance, they have their diet based on sweet potato. Again, another carbohydrate, and they were quite lean and healthy. So some people have taken that as evidence that this sort of carbohydrate-insulin hypothesis is incorrect. And I think as it stands, it is incomplete rather than incorrect. Mm -hmm. So while the piece that links insulin to obesity, I think, is very strong, what they've forgotten is that there are many, many inputs that determine what causes high insulin levels. So if, if it's not the car, so you can still eat carbohydrates, but if you're eating very little sugar, for instance, as a Chinese, then maybe there's something else going on in there that is still keeping that insulin level low. In the Katavan study, what was very interesting is that despite eating a lot of yams and cassavas and so on, their insulin levels were extremely low. They were at the fifth percentile, meaning that uh, compared to a um, Swedish population, so they, they had insulin levels that were lower than 95% of the Swedish population, despite the fact that they're eating a lot of carbohydrates. 
So because their insulin level was low, that explains why there was very little obesity. So you have to look and see what else influences insulin levels, and there's many, many different things. And that's, uh, that's, the, that's the weakness of the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis, is that it only takes one of perhaps five or ten inputs into, into that. For instance, if you, you were to consider cardiovascular disease, so smoking certainly contributes to heart attacks. Yeah. But you wouldn't say that smoking causes heart attacks. That would be correct, but it's incomplete. So it's correct and it's incorrect because certainly smoking contributes to heart disease, but so does age, gender, family history, diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, uh, high stress job, lack of exercise. So there's perhaps eight or 10 different things that contribute to heart disease you've only identified one. Mm -hmm. So whenever you look at a disease state, you got to realize that nothing in medicine is, is like linear like that. One thing causes one thing causes one thing. So there's lots of different uh, inputs that go into what the insulin level is going to be. So some of those would include uh, other things such as dietary fat, dietary protein, cortisol levels, stress, sleep deprivation, uh, but I think the biggest one really is insulin resistance and fructose. Can, can you sort of talk more about the insulin resistance there a bit? Sure. So insulin resistance is the idea that the insulin in our bodies is not working quite right. The reason that we... So insulin drives glucose into the cells and the cells use the glucose for energy. When you have insulin resistance, the glucose doesn't get into the cell. And so therefore what the body does is it increases the insulin to overcome that resistance and pour more glucose or a normal amount of glucose into the cell. So we care about this because it causes high insulin levels and it's the high insulin levels that leads to obesity. So it's, it's quite important that insulin resistance leads to high insulin levels, leads to obesity, because that's a pathway that is completely independent of the carbohydrate pathway. And in other words, it's another uh, link to the insulin, but it's not the same. Similarly, if Smoking causes heart attacks, but so does, for instance, high blood pressure. Now, smoking and high blood pressure don't have a huge amount to do with each other, but they both contribute to the same thing. So, same thing is that carbohydrates contribute to high insulin. Insulin resistance causes high insulin as well. So, you can see that that's quite important. So, then you have to try and understand what causes the insulin resistance in the first place. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data that shows that insulin itself causes insulin resistance. It's not simply the high insulin levels, you need the persistence of those insulin levels. So if your body is exposed to a constant stimulus, it will react by developing resistance. For instance, if you are in a dark room and you suddenly go out into the light, you're blinded by the light. But after a few minutes, everything just seems normal. That's because you actually adapt to the light, but another word uh, for that is resistance. You now resist the bright light. Mm -hmm. In a similar manner, if you imagine a baby in an airport and they're just sleeping away, well, it's really, really loud in the airport, right? But it's constant, so the baby's just sleeping away. You can take that same baby and put him in a quiet room and the slightest creak in the floorboard will just wake him up, right? Again, what's happening is that anytime you have a constant stimulus, so constant noise or constant quiet, your body reacts to that and adapts to that. And it tries to resist that. So it's a biological principle called homeostasis. So whenever your body has a certain kind of comfort zone, whenever you move away from it, it tries to bring it back. 
So it's the same thing. If you have high insulin levels, but it has to be persistently high insulin levels, then your body will react by developing resistance to that insulin. And again, we care about that resistance because it will lead to high insulin levels. Now you see that if insulin leads to high insulin resistance and insulin resistance leads to high insulin, you can see that that's a vicious cycle. It will keep going round and round until it gets worse and worse. And I think that that's exactly what's happening here in that you, the, the development of obesity is a, it's a disease that develops over decades. It's not a disease that develops usually over a month. It's something that takes time to develop. And that's what a lot of these theories of obesity don't really understand. There's a time dependence to this obesity. Now, if you have insulin driving insulin resistance, insulin resistance driving insulin, you see that that is going to take time. And the longer you, you go along around and around, around and around, the worse it gets. So the, the expectation then is that if you have somebody who's been obese for 40 years, they're going to have a lot harder time losing that weight than somebody who's just recently gained weight. And that's pretty much what you hear anecdotally. There are these people who have been obese since childhood, and they can't seem to break that. Both the calorie model and the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis don't allow for any kind of time dependence. That is, if you're 400 pounds and you recently gained it in the last year, versus if you had gained it, if, if you've always been 40 years of uh, obesity, you should still lose that weight at the same rate. Mm -hmm. But you don't. It's pretty obvious to anybody who's been obese for a while that somebody who's very recently obese has a lot easier time shedding that weight. And that's because now if you have the insulin resistance, which is now driving your insulin, then just changing your diet doesn't necessarily make a difference in terms of the, uh, the high insulin levels. During your talks over the past few days, you, you mentioned we can actually have infant obesity and how it's getting younger and stuff. And you, and you mentioned the, the paper in The Lancet in 2010. Can you t tell our readers a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's, there's several phenomena that are quite interesting. So you can see that if you look, if you think about insulin causing obesity, which I think is correct, uh, rather than calories, what you can see is that women who have very high insulin levels, so gestational diabetes, and women who take insulin, for instance, they develop uh, something called fetomacrosomia, which is babies who are very large. So you can see that the babies obviously haven't eaten too much or exercised too little. They're basically newborns. And what's been happening, of course, is that under the influence of that maternal insulin, that's going to get translated to high insulin levels in the infant, which is going to lead to neonatal obesity. And you can actually go back and look at the birth weights over the last number of years, and you can see that they've been steadily going up. There's also a correlation between pregnancy weight gain and the size of the baby. Because again, if you're gaining a lot of weight during pregnancy, you've probably got that insulin, which is causing a lot of effect. Now, some of that obviously is hormonal. There may be other inputs into it. But under the influence of high maternal insulin, you get high infant, infant insulin, which leads to larger than usual babies. So over the decades, you've had actually an increase in birth weight um, of the babies. You can associate birth weight with maternal, uh, the, the birth weight with the maternal weight gain. And the other thing that's been documented is that there's a lot of obesity, there's a tripling of obesity 
in the six-month-old infant, which again is very interesting because these, these babies are eating breast milk and they don't even walk. So clearly there's nothing to do with their diet. They're not eating too many calories. They're not eating too many carbs either, right? They're, they're, they're taking breast milk. And clearly exercise has nothing to do with it. They can't even walk. So the question is, why are they so obese? There's a tripling of the, of the obesity rate at the six-month-old infant. Well, again, it's simply the fact that you've got a lot of insulin. So it's the maternal insulin, which is now setting in motion this whole insulin leading to insulin resistance, which is causing these six-month-old to be obese. Now, as you get more obese infants, you've got, you've got childhood obesity, and you see that things kind of snowball from there. So in, in essence, the, the really sad part about the whole thing is that the maternal obesity can actually directly translate into infant obesity. And since you're starting this whole cycle of insulin and insulin resistance early, you're getting this huge epidemic of childhood obesity that's actually passed on from the mothers. So now we're seeing type 2 diabetes earlier and earlier, and people don't understand it, so they're trying to put money into physical education and for in the schools and that sort of thing. But without really understanding that really this is an insulin issue, you need to fix things at that level rather than anything else. During your talks, you actually mentioned new sort of ways of looking at diabetes yeah. um, and the fact that it may not be the progressive uh, destructive disease that we've always been taught at medical school. Right. And it certainly opened my eyes. If we could take it through that and then maybe talk about how uh, diet can influence diabetes and is it as important as the current medical therapies that we're utilizing? Right, so diabetes has always been considered, uh, not always, but recently considered a chronic and progressive disease, which is, I think, incorrect because if you had a patient who came up to you and said, look, doctor, I have type 2 diabetes, but I changed my diet, I cut out a lot of carbohydrates, I cut out the sugars in particular, I've exercised, I've lost 50 pounds, my diabetes has gone away. You wouldn't say, oh, you're lying, right? This is a chronic disease, that doesn't happen, right? That, that's, you'd say, good for you. That's what you would say, right? So in essence, what, what's happening is that we know almost we, what we have to do to reverse the diabetes. We know it, we just won't do it. And because we won't do it, we call it a chronic progressive disease instead. So clearly, there's something about dietary measures that is going to reverse this type 2 diabetes. It's, in, in, in hindsight, it's completely obvious because the epidemic of type 2 diabetes is fairly recent. So from about 1990, perhaps. So there's a lag between the obesity epidemic and the diabetes epidemic in the United States. But it seems fairly obvious that there is something environmental, diet-wise or lifestyle-wise that is causing this type 2 diabetes, which is good and bad. It's good in that uh, if, it's, if it's a diet and lifestyle issue, then we can change it and we can reverse it. It's bad in that people can continue to treat a diet and lifestyle issue with drugs because that's not going to work. If it's a diet and lifestyle issue, you need to deal with the root problem rather than prescribing medications. The other thing that, that is a big mistake in terms of the treatment of type 2 diabetes 
is that we acknowledge that the disease is a disease of too much insulin resistance. So we know that's the underlying cause of the high blood sugars. We know that's the underlying cause of the type 2 diabetes. Yet what we treat is not the insulin resistance. We treat the blood sugars. So there's a huge disconnect and it's, it's not, that, that part of the thing is not controversial. Nobody is saying that it's not a disease of, type, of insulin resistance. But again, if you know that's the cause, why are you not treating the cause? Imagine if you had a leg infection, a flesh-eating disease of the leg. You would say, well, you have a bacteria. You need to treat the bacteria with antibiotics. But instead, if that infection is causing a fever, you don't say, oh, let's treat the fever. Because that's the symptom. That's not the disease. It's the symptom of the disease. When you treat the symptom, nothing gets better. That leg is going to be amputated. It's the same with type 2 diabetes. We know the disease is insulin resistance, yet we treat the blood sugar. That's only the symptom. If you treat the insulin resistant, the sugar will get better by itself. Just like if you treat the infection, the fever will get better by itself. But you can't treat the symptom and expect the disease to get better because that's not the way things work. So that's the other big mistake. So there's been two big mistakes in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. One is to say that it's chronic and progressive. And it, that's an especially bad thing to say because one, we already know it's not true. And two, it tells people not to even try to get better. That is, it gives them a sense of learned helplessness that they should just accept it, they should just take their medications rather than say, look it, it's a diet and lifestyle issue. Let's see what it is about your diet. See what it is about your lifestyle. Let's change that and get rid of the actual disease. So instead we call it progressive and then we treat the symptoms. Well, that's, that's really just like taking that fellow with the leg infection saying, you've got a leg infection, it's gonna get worse, live with it, let me give you some acetaminophen. Well, that would be considered malpractice. It would be horrible if somebody treated somebody like that. Yet in type 2 diabetes, which is a worldwide epidemic, we treat 99% of patients exactly like this, which is mind-boggling. What we're leading up to there is potentially saying that we can cure diabetes. And, and you mentioned some of the studies. So if we can end on this, really, and let's talk about empowering the patient again and, and, and showing them that there are studies that you can actually take a diabetic, a type 2 diabetic, and get them back to being a normal individual without that disease. Can you tell us how that goes about? Yeah, so I think that that, that is very important because what, we're, what we try to do is give hope back to these patients, right? Because if you tell patients, look, you're diabetic, you'll have it for the rest of your life, get used to it. You're telling them to give up hope, which is horrible. It's soul draining, truthfully. What we're saying is that, yes, you have diabetes, but it's within your control to take care of it. So if you follow these, these prescriptions, dietary prescriptions, lifestyle prescriptions, then you can get better. And that's, what, that's what's really important. There are uh, lots of studies that show, for instance, in bariatric surgery, that if you, if you have a sudden severe caloric restriction, the diabetes essentially goes away. 
Now, we can't all do bariatric surgery, so there's been other studies, uh, such as the Newcastle study, which had received quite a bit of press, uh, where they followed a very low-calorie diet for eight weeks, and again, completely reversed their diabetes. Now, that protocol was quite difficult. It became known as the Newcastle protocol, and there was actually many people who followed it. But they found it difficult. But the, the, the fact remains that, yes, it's difficult, but the diabetes was reversed. That's the important piece. We can take a look at what makes it work and try and tweak it and try and work with patients, right? So the thing is that our job as doctors is not to tell people what's easy. It's to tell them how to get better. If somebody has a cancer and we say, I'm going to need to cut it out and give you chemotherapy, it's very difficult. That is a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, right? But we still say, well, yeah, but you need it to get better. So nobody questions that. But if we say, well, you need to follow this dietary prescription so that you'll get better, and then somebody else says, well, that's too difficult, forget about it. We would never say that in cancer, for instance. We would never say, well, you know, I need to cut off your breast and give you radiation and give you chemotherapy, but that's really hard, so ah, that's all right, just die. Uh, that'd be ridiculous, again, malpractice. But that's the same thing we do in type 2 diabetes. We say, well, we could give you a dietary prescription. I could say, you need to do this to lose weight, and your diabetes will get better. And I know it will. If they lose 20, 30, 40 pounds, they will, lose, they will do well. If they follow, for instance, the Newcastle Protocol, they could do well. Now, I don't use the Newcastle Protocol, but there's other ways to do the same sort of thing. Well, I'm not telling them that it's easy. Our program is called the Intensive Dietary Management Program, not the Easy Dietary Management Program, right? I tell patients, look, it's going to be hard, but I'm here to help you. The same thing if people needed chemotherapy, I'd say, this is going to really be terrible, but I'm here to help you, right? You don't say, this is really hard for you, you can forget about it, I know you're going to get sick later, and we'll deal with it then, right? That's not the way to make people better, that's not the way to treat people. And in almost every other disease, we accept that we have to tell them to get how to get better, no matter how hard it is. So whether it means amputation, whether it means heart surgery, whether it means chemotherapy, whether it means toxic drugs, if we think that it makes them better, we tell them this is what you need to do. If they don't do it, well, that's their choice. They have free will. But you, what you don't say is that, well, that treatment's too difficult. I'm not even going to recommend it for you. To me, that's the, that's the, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable in any part of medicine. Yet we think it's acceptable for type 2 diabetes. We think it's acceptable to tell these people that they are going to just live with this curable disease and get sick from this curable disease, rather than tell them the hard truth of this is what you need to do. Cut out your sugars to zero, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first step. Maybe throw in some other dietary interventions such as intermittent fasting or very low carb restrictions. There are different ways to do it. But the wrong thing to do is simply say, you know what, give up hope now. In 10 years, you'll be blind and on dialysis, but too bad for you, right? That's not what you do as a doctor. You'd have to tell people, look it, I know how you're gonna get better. You're gonna have to lose 50 pounds, and this is how you're gonna do it. It's gonna be hard, I'm here to help you. 
That's what it means to be a doctor. It's a lot easier to say, oh, here, you're diabetic. Let me give you a prescription for insulin. They're out the door in two minutes, right? What happens is that the doctor's happy because he gets paid. The insulin company's happy because they, they get paid. The food company's happy because they're still buying the food. The only one who suffers in all this, the patients. And I hope that's a very motivating way of ending this. And, uh, and you mentioned the Newcastle study there. What we will do as well is put in the description to this podcast um, all of the papers that we've spoken about so people can go away and read about it. We'll also put up there the website that you run because you're currently using these dietary advice and right. uh, caloric restrictions very well. And it's very useful, I've been on there, to have a little look at what you can do and it gives some really good practical tips. So thank you very much for your input, Dr. Fung. Thank you. That leads me to say you've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Jason Fung on the link between diet, obesity and diabetes. Empower your patients eat real food, and have a physically active day.